Hello and welcome. My name is Dr. Joanna Bucknell and you are listening to episode 30. Yes, 30. I did just say 30. Can you believe that? Episode 30 of talking about immersive theatre or Tate, which is T-A-I-T for short. So in this episode, I'm on the Zoomosphere again, just because at the moment with everything that's on, it's much easier to access people that way. And actually not everyone has permanent venues or sites that they're currently working out of because we're all still recovering from, you know, the global pandemic. But anyway, I got into the Zoomosphere and in this episode, I talked to Joe Strickland, who is the Artistic Director of Chronic Insanity. So rather than me waffling on, I'm going to let you listen to the both of us waffle on together. Enjoy. So hello, I am here in the Zoomosphere. We're not actually in a performance space. So I'm in Birmingham. And uh, Joe, where are you? Uh, I am in Nottingham. In Nottingham. Excellent. So I'm here with Artistic Director of Chronic Insanity, which is Joe Strickland. So Hello and welcome. Hi, yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, I was going to say thank you so much for joining me. I know it's a bit of a, it's always a busy time, isn't it, for anyone involved in scholarship and anyone involved in the creative arts. (laughs) Yes, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So why don't we kick off with you telling us a little bit about your background, sort of where you trained and and sort of how you came to be involved in theatre. Sure, absolutely. Um, where does it start? I guess. I was going to um, say, how far back? <laughs> as, yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll yeah, so, um, I think as a kid, I was a magician is often the best way of starting off because it kind of ties back in later. And I did a bunch of um, magic competitions as a teenager. I think at one point I was um, at the uh, Young Magicians Club, the kind of junior arm of the magic circle. Um, I, I lived in Northeast London. I grew up there. So I was, you know, and the magic circles in like, it's like a five minute walk from Euston. So just jump on the Victoria line once a month and was in this kind of big building full of magic history museums and libraries and sorts of things. Um, And I got through to the, uh, the finals of the uh, young magician of the year. So I was in like the top six young magicians in the country when I was 17. Um, I got invited to perform internationally. Couldn't go, couldn't make afford the journeys, but um, Mm. the invites were fun and very encouraging. And a lot of my acts at the time were very unconventional and would be very theatrical and um, story driven. Like um, a lot of other magicians would just do like, you know, I'm going to link some rings and now I'm going to make some balls appear on some cups. And now I'm going to do a card trick. And they didn't really, they were just kind of lists of tricks. And I uh-huh. wanted to tie it together with some sort of narrative or some character or something a bit more. So we had a television shopping presenter who had stolen a bunch of knockoff magical goods off of the back of a lorry and was trying to get rid of them. Um, <laughs> or there would be, um, some other character tying it all together and making there to be you know a story so I guess that's when I started actually writing and making theatre stuff was for those sorts of competitions to try and stand out um did you have a magician's name did you have like a special no online I did I had a few magician youtube channels in my youth and those names I'm happy to have lost to history (laughs) let people go looking for them um, That's they never disappear, do they? YouTube sort of no, remains. I, 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 every so often, I'll, I'll, I'll search them up and see how the videos are doing. They, they, they linger in the high hundreds, low thousands of views, so there's no chance of them resurfacing. But uh, well, tenacious um, listeners might be able to uh, to dig and find some. You never know. If they can, then they are welcome to try, and they can watch <laughs> awkward teenage me doing some magic. That's fine. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I did that, went to a university, studied psychology for my undergrad, um, did, uh, took a year out, did a master's, uh, again in psychology, did a kind of computer science PhD, looking at um, immersive technology and audience behavior data and theater. But all the while I was doing all this academic stuff, I was um, doing student theater and amateur theater. Um, I had a few kind of, a few flirts with professional stuff, but they often went uh, not great early on and you know you're kind of a 21 year old producer and there's you know it can be difficult to find the right sort of jobs that mm-hmm. don't try and take advantage of you or don't kind of you, yeah like it can be it, it was tricky and it was tricky for me and um but eventually uh we started taking shows up to Edinburgh um which were kind of magic theater shows they were basically the acts I was doing as a teenager but getting other other performers to learn magic and to do them so we could do more of them and we kind of have these monologues about 15 minutes each and we collect a bunch together and those started doing decently um we got decent reviews and we weren't hemorrhaging money on an edinburgh show which is always lovely um, nice. we, were pro- <laughs> we were just about breaking even on on short runs which was nice 
Um, and then eventually we kind of reached a point Well, I reached a point where I'd kind of, I started wanting to do shows that even at the kind of student theater I was at, they were kind of erring on the side of, we want to do more, you know, there was more economic uncertainty within the society and they wanted to do, you know, um, either Shakespeare stuff or they wanted to do, uh, Greek plays they knew the classics department at the university would come and see or they wanted to do things like um stags and hens and other kind of crowd pleasers and comedies and that was just so far from the sort of 90s in your face British theatre the Philip Ridley Sarah Kane Anthony Nielsen Mark Ravenhill sort of stuff that I wanted to put on and had previously been putting on but slowly people had grown less and less fond of me trying to stage so me and another person at the theatre called Nat Henderson we uh were inspired to start our own theatre company together and just do our own stuff. And that's how we started Chronic Insanity in um, May of 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, and then our first show was in September. And we set up the company with the aim of trying to do the sorts of things that we kind of weren't being able, well, weren't being allowed or given permission to do elsewhere to kind of do things without having to ask for permission to do them. Um, and we were kind of lo-fi and we'd use a lot of found spaces. And so a lot of our work would end up being quite immersive or interactive because there was no mm-hmm. barrier between the audience and the piece. So to ignore that the audience was there wouldn't make any logical sense. Yeah. Um, and also we decided that we wanted to make, we'd always been told there was a limit on the amount of work that we could make. Um, so we decided we were going to do 12 shows every 12 months. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is something that even in spite of the pandemic hitting halfway through our first year, um, because I think we're very fortunate. We just had a successful arts council grant to do six shows and they allowed us to pivot to make them digital. And because I had the confidence having already started my PhD at this point, and I already knew a lot about digital theater and the technology, and I knew I could edit video, edit sound, code, do anything we might need to do to make something. Um, So we kept doing digital stuff. And after our first year, we managed to do 18 productions. And our second year, we managed to do 24. And now we're in our third year. And I think we're... Well, it's end of April and we're five or six shows down. Wow. I mean, um, that is an astonishing rate of sort of production. Yeah. <laughs> and also doing that alongside doing a PhD is, is extraordinarily impressive as well. How have you managed to sort of balance or is there some is there a relationship between that, that scholarship and that research and the practice? Do, do they link or do they just sort of more holistically inform each other? I think they more holistically inform each other. I mean, technically a chunk of my PhD is like, um, is practice led where I kind of did research around an interactive online digital theater piece that I made. Um, mm-hmm. But coming up with theories and then having all this digital theater, like a thing a month to kind of, kind of hone them and test them out on was really helpful. And actually rather than it being like doing two super busy things at once, it ended up, they ended up kind of having this sort of um, symbiotic relationship and helping each mm-hmm. other out. I think so. Uh, yeah, it, it wasn't quite the headache that maybe initially it sounds like it could be. Mm-hmm. And that's, um, it's such an interesting position, actually, because I haven't spoken to anyone else who has that sort of background in magic who comes with those digital skills as well. And so I think your work is situated in a really interesting kind of hybrid space. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about what you think it is that makes makes your work distinct and how those sort of different spheres sort of inform what chronic insanity is and the sort of type of work that you make absolutely yeah um I think that we never we never think we have a bad idea and though that can be a dangerous thought to have um we always think that there's there's some value or merit to even the kind of the quickest idea so we don't like get rid of any bolts from the blue that we receive anything any Mm -hmm. you know sudden inspirations or things we'll watch something and go that was good, but maybe it could have done this. And then we'll see if that's an idea, just the same thing, but with a twist or a little change here and there. Um, and I think a lot of that comes from all these different avenues, just because there's so much, you know, experience from, you know, I don't come at it from, I haven't had any, you know, theater training. I haven't had any performance training or any directing training or design training. Um, it's always just been a hobby and a passion. And therefore to an extent, you know, you, you never, you know, I really enjoy doing it. The only reason I do it is because I like it. So they always have approach it with the kind of the passion of an amateur rather than the professionalism of a professional. And that means that I'll try a thing. Um, and, and we do loads of work. So even if something doesn't work out, it's fine. That's not the show I'm doing this year. That's the show I'm doing this month. And I've got another two or three or four on the horizon. So if it doesn't work, and, and I find that that 
relaxes all of us that work with the company mm-hmm. a whole bunch because we there's me there's a few other core team members uh, now our co-founder a few producers and social media people and then we have a group of like 20 ish associate artists yeah. who um a lot based in the east midlands but they branch out around the country and occasionally internationally and they kind of always jump on board for projects here or there whenever they're free so it's a super flexible arrangement that everyone can kind of can kind of get behind and be as active or inactive for whatever periods as much as they want and that just means that we've we've really tried to build this massive kind of sense of flexibility around everything we do because we you know we'll sign out a year we'll plan the shows you want to do and within two months we know we won't be doing half of them but we've got other ideas that fill their spaces and Mm -hmm. we kind of plan knowing that we're going to ignore a lot of it um and, and you're much more a collective then in that way because I was looking at the website and I was like there's so many people involved but but is it much more like different people jumping on different projects and so it's kind of pooling people's talent uh yes and I think a lot of the people we work with are very multidisciplinary in their own practice um I think it's very rare that we work with somebody who doesn't at the very least have you know a desire to one day explore some other element whether they're a performer but they also want to write or they're a a producer who wants to direct or they're a technician who wants to maybe like perform in something eventually um and we make sure that we find those spaces so you know mm-hmm. artists are multifaceted everyone is and so we try and find opportunities for for our um associate artists to be every facet of the artists that they are um and because we do so much work that doesn't mean we have to have ever really have to make any sacrifices to allow people to do that uh, yeah mm-hmm. And I think that's really interesting because actually there is a real DIY sort of tapping into a few of those things that you said. I think there's a real DIY sensibility in the immersive uh, sort of experience, audience centric experience sort of community. So that kind of pop up DIY, let's just throw it at an audience and get them involved and and sort of see what happens. Even people who come from a more traditional background, because traditional theatre doesn't function in the same way as immersive at all and it's hybrid and it's cross-disciplinary and it's a little bit of lots of different things and yeah. that very much feels like it's at the heart of what it is that you do as well yeah the, like like the more and more I and mean, we've been quite fortunate we've been able to work we've been commissioned by quite large organizations we've worked with buildings and we often leave it with a feeling of like this isn't how we want to do things because there's loads of bureaucracy and there's loads of just waiting for people to sign off on things and the work we make is all we make work because because we want to do something not because we want to do this thing specifically and so we're quite happy Mm -hmm. to spend you know one or two months making a thing and then forgetting about it but often a lot of the stuff we made is digital so if we need to bring it back it's there and it exists and we can do that very easily and if not it was devised and improvised and immersive and as long as we can get a similar space and some of the original cast back then we've got the thing and getting it up on its feet is you know we'll rehearse a show in I'll tell people that we'll rehearse a show by turning up at the venue, doing our tech and dress, and those are the rehearsals for the performance we're going to do. And people look mortified because other people either feel like they need or want to, or they like playing as a director and being a director. And so they want, you know, mm-hmm. weeks, if not like a month of rehearsal time to do something. Mm-hmm. But we don't have the time to do that. We can't afford to do that. Um, mm-hmm. there's, it's That's never been able to be a part of the way we make work. And so it still isn't. Um, we like making things quickly and responding to a space but you can't do that in the rehearsal room and um so yeah there's all sorts of these little tiny reasons that we may work the kind of the way we do but they've all kind of come together in a kind of supportive mesh of mm-hmm. odd bits and bobs and reasons and explanations that allow us to kind of make uh you know, we set out we wanted to do we didn't think that making a high quantity of high quality work had to be challenging we know that often people want to do one or the other and we would like, well, let's try and do both and let's see if that's possible and let's figure out how to do that. Because even if we get it wrong for a bit at the beginning, eventually we might get it right. And if we get it right, then we're, you know, that's our goal dust. We're onto something. Mm-hmm. And we think we always reach a little bit closer to doing that every time we, we make something, which is lovely. Yeah. Well, it seems like um, because you have that background in magic, I mean, I don't know a great deal about magic, so I'm making massive assumptions here, but it seems to me that it's very audience-centric and it is a, about the audience and about the way you draw them in, engage them. And so those that sort of attitude and that understanding of the centrality of audience, I'm assuming is something that you've been able 
to really sort of pull across into your more theatre-based practice? Yeah, a hundred percent. The amount of empathy required to be a good magician is astounding because, you know, you can practice a trick to yourself, but then you're looking at it in the opposite direction as the audience will. So actually it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. You always have to, you know, you'll perform a thing and be ruining it it for yourself in order for the people you're performing it to, to be impressed by it. And you also have to be wary of your audience. You know, if you're doing like a close-up magic at like a party or in a restaurant or something, there'll be people who are super into it. And there'll be people who hate magicians with a passion for some reason. And (laughs) that's probably because they assume a certain elements of arrogance or whatever in, yeah. yeah, But also it can be because it's your magic, it, it, you know, it has this weird blending of the world of the fiction, the world of reality. It kind of says, you know, if you're a magician, you're not saying you can do real magic, but then you turn up and do something which looks indistinguishable from real magic. Mm-hmm. That's scary or yeah. uh, confusing or befuddling or threatening in some way to some people in the same breath that it's amazing to other people mm-hmm. and entertaining. So I think it's the idea of not just, yeah, you're absolutely right, the idea of having to really consider the audience's view and how they're, engaging with something but also coming up with a thing that can shift and ebb and flow depending on with the audience changes whereas if you rehearse a play traditionally you rehearse you're essentially creating like you know like a four-dimensional sculpture that gets reproduced every evening and it doesn't really change depending on who's watching it or and and obviously this you know different people rehearse shows in different ways and different shows have different amounts of interactivity and responsive to the audience but maybe they're just at set points Whereas whenever we've made stuff or I've been creative, I've been the creative lead of something we've been making, there's much more of that sense of if at any point something happens, let's figure out what's going to happen. You know, mm-hmm. if we offer the audience three options and they decide on a fourth, how do we move from there? Um, mm-hmm. If the audience want to take control more of a piece, how can we let them do that? We're still achieving our aims, you know, providing the entertainment, the enlightenment, the kind of social bonding of the audience that we're kind of setting out to try and do. So, um, yeah, and I, like I said, I don't I don't have a lot of experience in other rehearsal rooms I've never really assistant directed in spite of trying because that's very difficult to do yes I've shadowed <laughs> a bunch of stuff so I don't know how usual this is but we've sort of yeah come up with this own way of doing things and yeah you're absolutely right it's whenever I end up thinking about it the more I realize how inspired by kind of early teenage years of doing magic it is yeah and does your psychology background do you think really help you understand and I don't want to say manipulate because that seems like a a negative word but kind of construct certain sort of approaches that you know will have particular affect on audience um yeah a hundred percent um I I think most recently we've been trying to describe chronic insanity shows as the idea of we want to kind of we want to kind of take audiences and kind of throw them into the deep end of an issue and then have them kind of spout out the other end with um, the building blocks so they can um, they can tackle part of life or society that they maybe didn't feel they able to tackle before. Mm-hmm. And so much of that is psychological and so much of that is understanding, well, what are the audience going to feel like when they come in? What's the venue like? What's the audience journey? Are, they, are we performing in the basement of a museum? So there's going to be this big ominous hallway and then this weird little tiny passageway down into the weird medieval pokey thing where the ceilings aren't high enough. <laughs> or are we in a big comfortable space that this audience always goes to? Is it a community centre they're very familiar with or have they travelled and are taking a plunge into an unknown space? Um, are these performers there they know or not? Are these people's friends and family seeing the show or are they strangers attending something? Um, it's all of these little ex- elements of like user experience design, essentially, to try and figure out. But then also in the writing of a thing, you know, we find ourselves talking about concepts we don't know how popular they are or, you know, usual they are for other people. Ideas like, like how much can we, if we bore an audience for a bit, does that mean they're then more likely to take on board something we say once we give them something exciting? And so can we use boredom as a tool to make them then really absorb a message we really want them to take away from something, Um, which is always, you know, no one ever wants to bore an audience unless you're for a particular company. Forced entertainment sort of make make, make a huge, (laughs) a huge meal out of boring their audience with tedium, which I really enjoy, but I must be odd because I really like that. No, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. it's, you know, there are companies that do it and really do. It. In fact, then hearing about force entertainment was one of the was all the com- convincing we needed to be like, oh no, they're successful when they do this, so yeah, we, it's like we they, can do it. It's fine. Earlier yeah. boredom, all of those things, kind of you know, and they've had you know, gosh, what heading towards a thirty-year career 
maybe more now actually a long time <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah lots of psychology even and even some ways not just in the psychological way but in a purely perceptual way like um i did a uh i did we did a student i directed a student production of the play x by alistair mcdowell and i wanted the entire stage to change for the end of that show and what we ended up doing was um a, a trick in we did like a trick of, of color perception so we painted um red x's all on the back black wall of the auditorium and then we well get them right around we shone like a blue we had like a gauze and we had a blue light and shining the blue light on the red made it appear black and so all the x's were invisible for the whole show and then we could slowly fade it into a red light and then all of these red x's would appear white under a red light because that's how you you see those combinations and then it just looked like these painted x's just suddenly like bled and appeared on the back wall in a way that I wouldn't have known would have been possible if I hadn't have done a module on colour perception in the third year <laughs> of my undergraduate degree. Um, so uh, that's also yeah. a kind of magic. I saw a show a very long time ago when I was an undergrad um, at Hammers, uh, Hammersmith Lyric Theatre. It was Robert Lepage. Um, I think it was like Casa Azul, it was called. And they you couldn't see that there was a gauze across the whole of the front of the stage for a long time. And then at one point, one of the characters picks up a hammer and smashes a mirror and it all shatters across and again you couldn't see it until so again those sort of tricks and it was it was astonishing because even though from the theater I know all those kind of magic sort of the, the magic tricks of theater yeah. and how to light things and how to do that but it even sat in the audience it made me gasp because it was something so unexpected and um, just so simple to do as well just shifting of lights <laughs> yeah well I mean I, I guess what it is is um to tie the magic and the psychology magic is basically just an art form of attention and um, misdirection is just knowing attention and then using that for your benefit as an entertainer mm-hmm. and psychology obviously gives you a bunch of research about attention and influence and that sort of thing and particularly social or behavioral or just perceptual so I think it means that a lot of our productions have that you know, and again, it ties in, we think about what are the audience paying attention to and therefore what can we get away with um, and how blatantly can we do this? Uh, we had um, uh, a VR experience we did um, with a few different venues, Nottingham Playhouse, Broadway Cinema, and then we took it to um, uh, the Burton Taylor Studio in Oxford as part of Beat Festival. And it was, and the entire thing was based on the idea that we were like, when people have a VR headset on, they're blindfolded. They can't see the real world. So we can film a short film in that space and then when they're watching it we can rebuild the set around them and then they can take the headset off and be actually immersed in the space mm-hmm. they're in rather than just virtually and then we can play around with that and what does that experience feel like and how do people respond to it and that has been really interesting to see how people yeah they kind of particularly because the film was a very the play was called PVC. It was a very kind of Martin Madonna, Tarantino-esque kind of like hapless criminals who, and it all ends in a bloodbath, but it all feels safe because it's all virtual reality and you know it's not really happening. So then when you take the headset off and you see the kind of aftermath constructed around you with the <laughs> blood and the torn fabric and all the things and the phone going off still, and you're like, okay, what do I do now? Is someone going to jump out? Have I now suddenly been through? And nothing happened at the end. It was always just a like a space to kind of sit in and reflect in. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, and that again, that came from, you know, I've heard of a few other people doing things a bit like that. Um, yes. But it was something that we we weren't aware of those before we came up with the idea, and that was definitely coming from, you know, considering that technology from an attention perspective and realizing that Pete they would be completely ignoring the real world, and we had twelve minutes to make something interesting happen. Well, that's always been my concern with VR. I, I was very lucky, and again, being in a I used to work in a creative cultural industries faculty. So we had a lot of sort of VR tech, early tech there. Um, but I was always concerned by that isolating lack of haptic kinesthetic kind of quality to VR. So it's so great to see practitioners actually really thinking about that relationship between the kinesthetic material space and that virtual, which then in some ways makes it become aug- augmented reality rather than VR and I think augmented is always far more successful in this sort of immersive sphere than just VR because I think then VR, VR just VR becomes something different to being theatre per se I think in that respect yeah and I, I think well um, I guess like augmented reality exists oh no not exists um is effective in the same way you're saying yeah because like, like the one thing about theatre is that 
all theatre has a certain element of suspending your disbelief as an audience member. Absolutely. And augmented reality is that, you know, it's almost that midpoint between having something completely virtual and having something completely non-virtual and analogue and actually happening. And so there's a suspension of disbelief. You know that, you know, if you're, you know, if you're doing Pokemon Go or Snapchat, you know that that's not actually happening to your face or you know that that Pikachu isn't actually running around. But you tell yourself that because you are able to and because you're, you are, you know, you want to, you're, you're willing to believe it and you can. And I think that's especially for a lot of the kind of lo-fi stuff we do when we don't necessarily have a high budget, but we give the audience the right expectations going into something. If they're ready to play, if they're up to kind of suspend their disbelief, then they have a really great time of it. Mm-hmm. And we try and encourage people to do that with the kind of way that we, you know, the beginning of a show has a lot of hidden onboarding in it in the same way that the first level of a video game will teach you how to jump and how to block and will do that in a way that isn't just necessarily telling you what to do, but by giving you small, easy obstacles to mm-hmm. overcome. Um, we'll give you bits and bobs that will have the audience react to you in a certain way so you know, okay, something weird happened there. Let me see if I can do that later. You know, we can really yes. try and build those instructions into the beginning of a lot of the immersive or interactive and playable stuff definitely that mm-hmm. we that we make it's always trying to do that isn't it? it's onboarding and some things don't really well in world and so i've been to things that don't do that in world as well because there's like broader health and safety issues but i've cool. also been to things that manage those broad health and safety issues and do it in world <laughs> in context where, where you're able to do that but i was just thinking as you were talking there there's a real tension actually because the theater is about you have to suspend your disbelief. There is that contract, isn't there, between the work and the audience where you say, I am going to choose to believe this and to follow you. But I wonder if with magic, do you find, and again, I'm making assumptions because I don't have a background in magic, but are people always actually looking in some ways for the opposite, kind of looking to see how something's done, looking to see where the trick and where the magic is revealed as being not magic? Yeah, um, so magic, again, is a big part of my PhD was looking at um, and trying to come up with a more universal definition of the phrase liveness, which and all of the subsequent parts of presence, immersion, embodiment, which vary so drastically between different fields, it's basically impossible to have a, a, a multidisciplinary conversation about it, because presence in theatre is that feels like it's happening in my world, but presence in virtual reality is that it feels like I'm in the world where it's happening, which is the complete opposite. Uh, oh, I'm so glad you said that because the yeah. same terminologies are used in uh, sort of digital spaces as we use in, in immersive theatre, but they mean quite different things. And it's, it's a slightly different language that's got a different genealogy legacy. And so you're right, it's hard to have that conversation. And that that's, I don't envy you, liveness is, is one of, I would say, the most important questions that gets asked about theatre for scholarship for all time. <laughs> yeah, and so I, I I set out very kind of big-headed and um, and I was just like, I'm going to come up with a universal definition of liveness as part of my thesis. And I got to a certain, but I kind of came up with a shape called the liveness wedge, but um, the, one of the axes on that is like presence to embodiment to immersion. And it goes from whether the thing is in your world or whether you are in the world of the thing. And then embodiment is the kind of the boundaries dissolve and you're not quite sure which is where. And that's sort of where magic exists with um, a bunch of other eclectic art forms like professional wrestling or found footage horror films or mm-hmm. political propaganda. So where you're not quite sure what's real and what isn't because it's sort of both isn't isn't being presented as real and not real at the same time. Yes, yeah. Um, and so in that sense, yeah, if theatre does presence very well and you might try and do some immersion in more more traditional theatre setting, and you might be successful, you might not, but presence is the kind of key thing, then magic has that more embodiment. And it's kind of, yeah, you're right. It's a bit more of a, it's not, it's definitely not the same feeling because in theatre, you kind of go, I'm going to play along. I'm going to pretend I agree to this. But magic, because that's immersion, and immersion is a thing you have to agree to as an audience, whereas presence is a thing that you don't. Presence can just happen without your willingness. And we kind of, you know, like... You can hallucinate something being there that isn't there. You can be oblivious to something that is there and feel like it isn't there. So we know that psychologically presence is something that can be controlled by the external world, not by internally what's happening to you. Um, And therefore it's a quality of the piece of the performance of the artwork rather than a quality of the audience member watching it. And so with something like magic that really plays around with the whole idea of presence, yeah, it's you can feel like you've seen something impossible and actually feel it rather than like, going along and pretend, you know, like um, we might watch something like, you know, a show that does like um, really good animal puppetry. And we go, I'm going to believe that that's a horse or that that's a chicken or 
yeah. whatever. And you or, choose um, to disregard the things that you can see. Whereas yeah. magic's sort of the flip of that, isn't it? Because you see something and don't necessarily understand what it is that you're seeing, but you 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 feel it and it happens. Yes. Which is, which is not very, uh, that's not a very eloquent way of putting that. <laughs> yeah, but it's hard to talk about because it exists in this weird middle space and magic yes. isn't all that recent. I mean, like there's lots of crossover between the fields of psychology and magic and that mm. gets researched a whole bunch, mainly because you can use magic to research things like attention and stuff really well and perception. But it's it's harder to talk about culturally. I mean, this is one of the issues with my thesis was it's like, because the language isn't necessarily there. Like it's difficult mm. to explain these very particular- I was gonna say, do you think that um, magic gets marginalized in scholarship? Um, it's like poor musical theater used to get the same in theater scholarship. It was kind of, and don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm, everyone who listens knows I'm not a fan of musical theatre at all, but it, the way it used to be just disre- disregarded and dismissed as a form in scholarship was kind of crazy. <laughs> and yeah. do you think magic gets a similar sort of short shrift? Uh, probably, yeah. Scholarship. Um, <laughs> I, I think that it, I mean, I don't think necessarily magic as an art form helps itself out because it's so secretive and it can mm. be difficult, you know, unless you already know about it, then it can be hard to kind of understand it. There's There's a very... You have to kind of understand a lot when getting into it. And sometimes you get a big, you, people that start learning magic, you get a big kind of like sense of the, the Dunning-Kruger effect. Like you learn a little bit and then you're like, oh, I know all of it. And you're like, no, there's so much more nuance mm-hmm. and audience psychology and um, all of these other elements and nuances and things which are really important for doing stuff effectively and knowing when to do things in the right situations and and even more on top of that, given how much magic now gets done to camera and on mm. social media and how people, you know, and all of the inner uh, conflicts within the world of magic between people making effects that look really good in trailers and are basically impossible to perform to a live audience and whether people care about that or not, or whether this is mm. this is a card trick for Instagram and this is a card trick for a, a, an audience in a restaurant or at a wedding or something. It's so weird, and it's coming back to those distinctions of, of real or... And again, it's it's playing, isn't it, with that idea of, of, of the kinesthetic and the idea of sort of presence and liveness and what is liveness and is is digital live in the same way that doing it live <laughs> in yeah. person. Yeah. And so we still don't have that, the terminology or the language to articulate these things clearly. <laughs> yeah, I think that, so like, I feel very strongly about this and it's my opinion that like, uh, yes, digital theatre can be as live as in-person theatre, but you have to make it properly and it's a different genre of artwork and performance in the same way that you don't make a film by having an actor read out a book you know it's you you adapt it to a different medium and though they've both got the word theater in it that just kind of happens to be the case you know it's like um yeah and so when people watch digital when people watch digital theater at the beginning of lockdown made by people who've never made it before and then go digital theater is terrible you're like oh no you saw people doing it for the first time you know (laughs) figuring it out it's not going to be great necessarily it'll be people trying (laughs) things out because they have to or because now they have an opportunity to do the thing they want to do and it's Mm. so you have to take it with a pinch of salt like you have to and to make your mind up at that that early stage is just ridiculous especially because there is digital theater that does liveness really well i've been really lucky to work on some productions we did um i did a a horror play over whatsapp with new perspectives theater company and people would tell us that it was it was just you being like a voyeur in a what in like a kind of school run WhatsApp conversation. And then it one of the kids starts talking about they met a weird guy at the school that freaked them out. And then another character might not quite be who they say they are. And then suddenly you start getting mm-hmm. pictures and video and voice messages. And people in the group start dropping out and getting like affected mm-hmm. by something. And it's terrifying. And it's just text on a screen with a few emojis and some gifs and some grainy footage. Yeah. And it does all of that and it makes you feel like there's a threat in your immediate vicinity. And I don't know what could be more present or more live. Like, so it's, so we know it's just, and like I said before, you know, liveness is a quality of the work. It's not, you know, it's in the perception of the audience. It's not really part of the, yeah. the thing. It's, it's, you know, a piece and I think people get confused with liveness and with, with the, like the material, which I think is, is, is again, something slightly different. And I think, again, we're still struggling to find the terms to, to articulate what we mean by because people are like in person i'm like well zoom is in person because people are like you need to have in person meetings now and it's like well zoom is in person yeah because we're, we're both live and really here and yeah. so this is in person and then people say well one-on-one it's like well this is one-on-one 
yeah. as well. And so I think, yeah, we're still really struggling to sort of pin down how, how we articulate and draw those sort of yeah. distinctions. And then, like, add on top of that, the fact that I think there are lots of people that do theatre because theatre is very analogue and very in-person and mm. they might not get on with technology. They might not like it. It might not be their preferred way of doing things in spite of how convenient and sustainable and affordable and accessible it is for everyone else that they want to work with. Yeah. And so I understand that. And if you've been doing, particularly if you've been working in theatre for ages and I suddenly have to do it all differently and you feel quite confident one way and very not confident with a new way of doing things then sure yeah no one's going to make no one's ever going to make you know digital theater was never going to take over theater theater survived for the entirety of human civilization it's not going to stop because we can't do it for a year well there's always these things that come along don't they probably once every 10 years where something says oh this is going to destroy theater and it's like it really won't it will just add another genre to theater yeah exactly (laughs) there's um a company i don't know if you know their work very well called dark field radio Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, honestly, sometimes I feel like I can feel the speakers, and it's it's recorded. Everyone's listening to the same yes. thing. It, it doesn't change, but the presence that's generated, I feel like I can almost feel their breath on my skin. A hundred percent during some of those shows, and I had to keep really. I did it. I followed all the instructions. Did it all on my own because it's always horror, isn't it? And um, I, I did keep cheating and having to open my eyes because, like, was that on the recording? Was that for real? And did my bed sheets actually move? <laughs> yeah. And that's just a voice. But again, it's that binaurality, isn't it? Which starts to bring in another dimension to how, yeah. how we're used to it. Because we can feel the sound instead of just hearing the sound. Yeah. Well, the, the, that's the difference. Isn't yeah, it? but that's part of the psychology of it. Because if, if, Whenever you hear sound that quiet, but that loud, like quiet in tone, but loud in volume, mm-hmm. it's always naturally when there's someone very close to you. So mm-hmm. you'll, the neurons in your head will associate that presence and the feel of breath and the temperature of breath and someone being nearby you with those yeah. tones and those volumes. So when you then hear those, you're going to get kind of phantom firing of neurons for all the other elements and you can yes. simulate presence in that way. Yeah. Because it's kinesthetic, isn't it? Our bodies, our bodies yeah. have have kinesthetic memory, and so you're right; those things get brought back. It's like a synesthesia, effectively. It's sort of yeah, and pretty much yeah, yeah. It's it's, the, it's these weird, it's these kind of unpruned connections between things, and one sensation being kind of triggered or fired in the brain, mm-hmm. and another one is present in spite of the actual root for that first one not exhibiting. Yeah, yeah. it's exactly like synesthesia. Um, and um, it's interesting because for me, I I make, and I have done for a very long time, make one-on-one work. And for me, one of the reasons I've struggled, and I did have a go over lockdown, sort of trying to find a language to do that via Zoom or to do that in other digital ways. Binaural, I have worked with, and I use that actually in conjunction with live performance. But for me, it's about touch. And that's the one thing. Yeah screen-based digitality because oral that binaural I think can do touch in exactly the ways we've just talked about but I can't hold someone's hand I can't have that bodily connection with them in a sort of visual digital format and I've, I've not found a way to get that kind of intimacy yeah like kind of there's a chance that that might just not be like a, a possible in the same way that some people you know, watch book. You know, not watch books. They read books and they really enjoy the the visuals they conjure in their own mind. And then watching an adaptation of something, someone else has conjured them differently, and it's all wrong. And so yeah. they don't like the adaptation of the film because there's this key thing they can't do. Because if someone's giving you all that visual information, you can't necessarily imagine your own version of it on top of it. But mm-hmm. um, then it's kind of splits off. And I hope this is the way the digital theatre goes, um, where in the same way that you know morally i think community theater should tell stories about those communities i think more digital theater should tell stories about the digital world it makes sense to we've had loads of plays try and do things in online spaces and sometimes they do it well and other times they they don't do it well Mm -hmm. and actually you know if the story takes place in whatsapp stage it in whatsapp don't have a bunch of actors on stage reading whatsapps that are projected onto the wall that Uh, can work if you want to do a presence thing and try and get that across but also do it in whatsapp do it something yes. you know, lots of people doing zoom plays that aren't written for zoom because yes. of the pandemic and there wasn't another option and that way you could still see the audience and get that feedback you want between actor and you know there are lots of reasons to do it i don't think we ever did a zoom play in chronic insanity because we didn't have one that fit that you know that way of doing it. almost all of our digital theater work is on demand and i know loads of people 
hate that and won't think that that's theater as a result. We've done interactive, immersive work that's on demand in the kind of like, you know, free motion video interactive stuff like you know, Bandersnatch or the other interactive things you can do on Netflix. Yeah. But because we're addressing the audience directly, they mm-hmm. we are, you, know, you aren't a third person, you are a character, we give you a name or a title and you have work or jobs to do in order for the story to move forwards. Mm-hmm. It is live and it is a media because they have to do it then. It's just that that then can be whenever or We've done work that has used the fact that in the on the internet you can live things can have happened. So we did a show called Flavor Text, and the entire show was basically that you have entered into the story right at the tail end, and you look at the different comment sections on different websites with all their different dates and timestamps to kind of get a, a delayed uh-huh. sense of liveness because this thing happened uh-huh. live. It's just not happening at the same time, but you can still see how it plays out and build that sense there. And yeah. we were quite like, this counts as theatre, you know, it, it's, and And also it's live for you in that moment of engaging with those artefacts, engaging yes. with those objects. And, and so there are, there are layers of liveness. I yes, think. there's at least two different channels, but there's the events yes. of the thing and there's the way in which you piece them together and come, you know, and I, I always think that like theatre, you know, I, to me, a play or a theatrical experience begins when it ends, because then you consider it and you play around with it and the ideas stick with you and yeah. move forwards. Um, and actually, it's not just making the thing and then now that's done, you know, that it, mm. the ideas move forward and, and it passes on and it carries on. And so something like that, when it's like, you can't watch the thing, you just get to hear opinions about this event that happened and see mm-hmm. Some people report on it and go back and we'll throw kind of interesting things. We have like a fake MySpace page and we've recorded a fake uh, song from a band from one of the characters liked <laughs> and we put it on there to give it a bit more kind of oomph because there were lots of very text and image based things. So we wanted to throw some more music and to switch it up. Yeah. Um, but you didn't have to find it. And there was loads of that. You know, we had a through story. We had five writers on that project and they each wrote like an act and then we... Yeah cross-reference the acts back so they all felt coherent and then we were just like right well we've got an extra week we just need to write more posts that aren't relevant to any of the story to flesh all the websites out because um, well, I've, I've, I've just um i've just marked <laughs> i don't know how much i can talk about it so i won't say their name or anything but i've just uh, examined an um emres project which was doing interactive plays on zoom not on zoom what am i talking about on twine <laughs> That's right, yes. and actually we're seeing i think caroline horton has just uh, adapted a piece of work as well for being on twine and so we are starting to see people in, and, and again it's frustrating isn't it because I think some of the initial things are just trying to shove traditional theatre things into the digital form mm-hmm. but now I think people are starting to sort of breathe <laughs> and engage in the same way with the digital platforms as you would with a site and I think maybe that that's the future is being digitally responsive in a way, you would be site responsive. Yeah, the uh, the phrase I use in my thesis is um, website specific theatre, and the oh, idea nice. of um, that. Yeah, that you're coming to a, a piece of software or a web page or a communication platform that has its own ups and downs. It has its own features you can exploit yeah. and use creatively. It has its own themes you have to avoid or build creatively into the world. Conventions, contracts, yeah, exactly. social contracts. In the way that when you walk yeah. in and those red velvet seats and the darkened lights have have the same thing i think digital um platforms have have that same contract not the same contract as theater obviously some some equivalent contract yeah some the way in which this is normally used um and and do you play into that do you subvert that yeah Mm -hmm. there's way more considerations um twine is a thing that yeah we've used in that text based show i just talked about the comment on flavor text we had twine but um we uh, we did a couple of shows early on with Twine and we were like, okay, this is good for navigating. We can play videos, we can play audio, we can do accessibility features. We can but it is quite play. linear. It is quite It linear. can be super linear without having to then build a massive branching thing. But then that's loads of effort and resources and time. And you. so what I really like is when um, I, I think doing, yeah, complicated things really simply and cleanly, have a fun toy, find one cool feature and really push that as far as you can. But then I say that more do things like, but what can you get? Like you play, what are the conventions of this space? So we have like, there's a bit in flavor text where you get told in order to keep going on, you need to sign this NDA. And then you get given a wall of twine text of like legally. <laughs> and you have to like scroll through and be like, wait, is this? It's, am how, I actually how, how signing an NDA here? <laughs> there's no way of progressing past that point without agreeing to the NDA. And it will just sit there in like red text on a black background, really like <laughs> ominous to be like, okay, well. <laughs> And then when you do that, you get like the big payoff of the story for a lot of it. Um, 
but um yeah and we simulate all sorts we simulated like a a uh one of those little like prove you're not a robot uh like capture images on twine we have fake loading bars so you can kind of email someone a file and then you get taken to a thing showing it's uploading and you have to wait and watch as the loading bar goes up and there's tension and drama in that really mundane thing and the uh-huh. same thing when doing the whatsapp play we realized one of the most important things was seeing the current so-and-so is typing as anticipation within that medium which doesn't make sense anywhere else other than doing a show in that very particular place so yeah it's all i'm all for people doing as much there in as many different technological and digital spaces as possible but knowing that there are very particular social things and very particular kind of yeah, contracts that we kind of usually enter into and how do you consider those and take yeah. those and run with them and make the most of those sorts of situations yeah and um this brings me to talk about something i talk about with every single person i talk to but the term mm-hmm. immersive itself and so we've talked about immersive theater which i think is a crazy umbrella that seems to capture an awful lot of practices like for me I would never call my work even even theatre but I kind of have to because of certain contexts I think my work is much more live art based actually (laughs) and has lineage in that but I wanted to get your thoughts on what do you feel about that term sort of immersive theatre and where do you sort of locate the work within that yeah um (laughs) sorry massive question no no it's that tricky thing because definitely there are pieces we make that will say are immersive theater but that's so that theaters will fund it and actually it's probably more like an art installation that just happens to have some binaural sound in it and maybe there's a performer but maybe that doesn't mean it has to be and likewise we'll make some work which is like we'll we'll, we'll argue this very traditional staging of a play is immersive because of the very particular way that it's directed it immerses you and maybe we have just staged it in a space where we recognize it's in a theater or um I did a production where we basically built a zoo enclosure on stage and the audience had to walk across the sand in the enclosure to get to their seats. And I'm like, this is now immersive because you get a tactile sensation of this thing. And that makes sense right at the end. And so mm-hmm. it's a really big, messy, wibbly wobbly gray area. And I'm quite happy not really trying to answer the question and just being like, this feels, you know, is this interactive or playable? Do we really try and transport the audience? Is it a kind of, you know, high amplitude of of aesthetic like a sort of a meow wolf instagram museum kind of experience or are we just yeah. telling people you know i've tried to do that but i've also built a show that was just in a black box space and you just had scrunched up bits of paper and chairs and you had to deal with it you know like that way and you kind of made your it was just pure mechanics and zero aesthetics mm-hmm. but it was still a fun playable thing with a narrative and a story running through it um like well, that, I think um, your, your initial yeah. response was super interesting because a lot of practitioners feel that it's a tool, that it's a producer's tool, and that it's kind of necessary in some respects to sell certain kinds of work and to get this, the right kinds of audiences like along. <laughs> yeah, in that sense of like, kind of like, yeah, what if there's someone who, like, we won't call something immersive if we feel like somebody as an audience member who likes immersive stuff could come along and not like yeah it doesn't actually mean it has to be immersive yeah like we don't want to be fraudulent but it is a a a term with some ambiguity in it and so we'll use it as much as makes sense but it's not you know we're not trying to trick people who like immersive theater to come and see stuff but Mm -hmm. if we're doing like um we have a gig theater show coming up soon and if people go as like is that immersive interactive i'm like well it's super live and the character, the performers are instructed to talk to you like you're a human being in the same spaces and they don't ignore you. You're not a voyeuristic audience. You're there in the space with the story that they're telling. So in that sense, yeah, it's immersive and it's interactive, but you can't choose the direction of the play. But then the play is also sort of about fate. And so no one can choose the direction of it. Um, and it's so, uh, yeah, it's very particular. There's not an easy answer. And I know that, you know, that frustrates people. And people are like, no, right, this, is this, 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 this. These are the boxes <laughs> of the things I do fit in. I'm like, okay, fine. But I don't, I don't know. That's not the, the case for me. I wasn't, yeah. I've always done the stuff that's really on those the fringes. I think those are really, the really interesting kind of position, in-betweeny bits mm-hmm. uh, are the most interesting places to make work. Quite a lot. I always fall between the gap because as much as I say my work isn't theatre, I have a theatre background. I trained as an actor and then as a director, um, but also then discovered live art not long after that and never really looked back. But my issue with using live art is my work is very, very unpretentious. That's, that's the point of it. And so sorry for all of my friends who might be listening who are live artists, but there is a pretension that comes 
with that term that I find really troubling and problematic and puts off the people that would think, well, that's not for me. And I'm like, no, this is, if you've ever sat and had a cup of tea with someone or a piece of cake, this piece of work is for you. But live art has, has, has a troubled cultural position. <laughs> no, hundred percent. And we've seen that in practice. We did um, basically an art installation, an, a, a, like a, a spatial sound and physical installation at the Nottingham Playhouse for Amplify Festival last year called Criminal Intent, where we kind of mocked up a tent from a music festival, filling it with, you know, dirty clothes and sleeping bags and packers of paracetamol and ciders and stuff. And there were four pairs of headphones the audience could kind of go in, shuffle things around, make themselves comfortable. And then the headphones went on and it was a 15 minute experience where you hear the world outside the music festival tent, people walking past and having conversations. And then the music festival gets invaded by like an armed militia. And then you realize that you're the people that they are invading the festival to find and to hunt down. And they, it's this idea of like all this world around you, and you're almost invisible. And then suddenly you hope you're invisible because all these people are creating something not relaxing, but scary and moving towards you. Um, mm-hmm. And that was pure installation. That could easily just exist in a, an art gallery. And it was very in- inspired by, you know, things like um, Tracy Emin's, you know, everyone I've ever sat with. And yeah, and, and you know, <laughs> there were all these inspirations for that. And we had people coming along because it was at the, the Nottingham Playhouse. And they told us this was the first audio experience they'd ever done, let alone art installation-y thing. And they, they really wow. enjoyed it. And these were like people in like, you know, their 40s and 50s who might you know there's no other reason for them to do this other than they turned up and it was on and they had an hour in between the other thing they wanted to see and so they saw it and really enjoyed it so yeah a hundred percent would have sold that as an art installation i don't think any of those people might have turned up maybe that's me mispresuming but i don't think no, I, I, I don't I, think they would have I done agree. it yeah. <laughs> i think people do dismiss certain and again that's where there's immersive theater is kind of good because it is a uh, really elastic yeah and doesn't have that sort of it's not cultural high art, so it doesn't put off. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think it is inaccessible in certain ways in terms of ticket price and some of those things that have perpetuated through it. And I think it has real issues in terms of its EDI. I don't think it's very diverse and all those kinds of yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there is also, because of its DIY kind of aesthetic, I think it's, it is more open than traditional theatre is, I think, to new audiences and to different audiences. Yes, it. I think because it shares its... I think because so many different parts of the DNA came from different places. It hasn't, you know, theatre's evolution as an art form in a classical sense is very linear and it doesn't necessarily get influenced by other things, whereas immersive theatre kind of came out of a load of different places all at once and was influenced by all sorts of different spaces and yeah. and why it's so difficult to dis- distinguish between immersive and interactive and playable and why mm-hmm. there are often you know misunderstandings about exactly what something is is because it's sort of from all of these it takes proportions of all of these things at once you know it, it, it has lots of parents yes yeah exactly yeah it, it's a big <laughs> melting pot of all these different ideas around i don't just want to sit there and have the thing happen but do you want to be in the middle of it and walk around it? Do you want to help make the thing happen or stop it from happening? Mm-hmm. It, it all comes from that same kind of question and like provocation of stuff. Um, yeah. It's just then different, you know, practitioners take it and run with it in different directions, depending on exactly what their, what their issue with traditional theatre is or what mm-hmm. their creative instinct is to kind of, you know, go against that or try something different. My big concern, um, I'm writing my monograph about it at the moment, so I won't say too much. <laughs> But is that it? I think immersive theatre is synonymous with certain types of performance that set up expectations that other things get held against. And that's a little bit of my concern that sits around that term. Because although it is eclectic, exactly like you said, it's eclectic, it's hybrid, it pulls together all these different disciplinary approaches and different cultural practices. But I think, especially here in the UK, when you say immersive theatre, there's a couple, I think. Of yeah. pieces of work that sit in audiences' minds, and I think everything else gets held against that, and that yeah. that's dangerous. I think at your end, where things are trying to be innovative and are trying to trouble forms, because sometimes when the audiences see that word immersive, they are expecting, you know, a five million pound production, and yeah, like it's, and that's why earlier I was talking about things like um user experience journeys and expectations. You know, mm-hmm. if we welcome people into a space and there is no set then hopefully there's an idea of like we're not suddenly going to rebuild this massive thing we're going to ask you to imagine stuff or if we're 
yeah, like um, that's the thing that, you know, as a company, we're growing to the point which we want to start doing more ambitious things and reaching out to different. We do a lot of work in the East Midlands and in Nottingham specifically, but we started going to, you know, like we've done Edinburgh, we've done Brighton, and we're moving into London and doing more stuff in that space. I saw your work at the Crypt, uh, um, you know, Owen's place down in, down in Green. Yes. And, Which um, is becoming a little bit of a hub, I think, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I've since performing, I've gone back and seen other shows there. It, it's a really fun space and there's lots of, you know, it has lots of characteristics that you can make some really good work in there. And, but it's, there's something intimidating about the London immersive theatre scene because coming completely outside of it and coming into it, I'm like, I've, I've been made to feel incredibly welcome. I've really enjoyed coming into it and starting to do stuff and dip my toe in there. But you, you have certain shadows and spectres from other much larger, much more funded, much more established or um, critically acclaimed companies. And you worry that if you don't make a thing that's going to feel like that, then our audience mm-hmm. is not going to respond in the same way. How do you market and do a thing? But that's the same issue with loads of stuff. That's the same issue with digital. There were some really massively well-funded digital theatre productions that yes. came out and I think coloured audiences' perceptions of what digital theatre could be not always in a positive way and I think there's an mm-hmm. argument of things being like a detriment or well one yeah. of the most exciting things I attended um over lockdown was, was Coney's work and I, I went to the delegate and to telephone and they're so lo-fi but there is just something extraordinary about the way which is so far removed from kind of gloss and those sort of big budget things and um, but you're I, I do worry that those gloss perceptions will become sort of consolidated culturally and yeah. I think the more we can push at those the better <laughs> well I mean that's very much one of the one of the points of chronic insanity doing such lo-fi stuff and just being like we're not you know first of all it means that all of our money can go towards paying our artists and our performers and we don't have to buy a thing or hire a space and pay a landlord or Amazon or whatever you know we can pay a human being to do a thing um what then part you know it's that duality of like i'm scared of doing this and are we going to be and this part of me is like but if we don't change it who else is going to who else is going to kind of challenge this and just make a a thing that you can kind of do anywhere and maybe we are best positioned to be a part of that you know trying to shift away and say hey it doesn't all have to be like this you can do stuff in yeah in other spaces you know the, the show that you also came you know the fact that you're working outside of London because it is so London centric so yeah. when I met you at the crypt I was very excited because I was like oh my goodness people actually doing things and I know that Nottingham is actually a big hub of sort of digital based uh interactivity and immersion and there's a lot of stuff going on there certainly um within scholarship yeah but it's so nice to actually be able to talk to someone who is making work for audiences, not within a research context, mm. outside of that London immersive community. And I think everyone, because I constantly say, because obviously I am not based in London either, and I constantly say to people in that community, get out of London, bring the work elsewhere, and they're, they're scared that there's not an audience for it and that people won't come or they won't pay the ticket prices outside of London. But can you talk a bit about sort of your relationship with art institutions and audiences in the context that you're in there in Nottingham? Yeah. So I think firstly, I think, um, and I've talked to a few people who run other immersive theatre companies about this. And obviously London has a certain element of there's enough other stuff that it, people probably aren't coming to an immersive thing for the first time. And also there's just a large enough population that even if it's a niche idea, you've got enough people to do it. Yeah. But there are other cities around the UK that can host that. And Nottingham's in a very particular position because Nottingham has an incredibly thriving experience economy, whether that's tourism, whether that's because it's full of game studios, whether it's because mm-hmm. the city is full of escape rooms and board game cafes and cat cafes and VR arcades. And they've all been here for ages, even like, before the big boom in all those industries happened and they're still here post-pandemic still doing stuff still working still buying up other escape rooms in other cities in these midlands and in the northeast and northwest like nottingham is a real hub and i don't know whether that's because of the you know we've got the massive castle and it's 
there's all these caves and there's all this kind of tourism and history involved or whether because that there was a bit of you know it's trying to kind of develop into this kind of big scene in tech in the uk for digital stuff web games maybe because it's the home of games workshop and all the warhammer and white dwarf stuff comes out of it yeah exactly it actually has all this and almost every bar in the city has some sort of immersive theme or some speakeasy within a speakeasy mm-hmm. like, actually, <laughs> the city itself is this massive you know thing of all sorts of immersive present interactive bits and bobs mm-hmm. um and there's loads of public art that does that there's loads of festivals that kind of help bring that further out into the more public spaces and not was really great space to actually yeah to do this sort of stuff and i'm sure there are loads of other cities around the uk that are also like that that could definitely have more immersive stuff you know manchester easily could leeds could like there's all sorts of places that could have way more stuff yeah. happening where there are audiences that would want to do it and we know that we've been you know performing to some of them and sure sometimes we have to go through more established institutions like the playhouse or broadway cinema which is this big independent cinema on the center of nottingham or doing stuff at the national justice museum you know we'll we'll do things at museums and galleries because they have an audience and but we know that actually what we do has quite a wide appeal as long as we pick but we have a lot of shows so we pick the right show for the right space and the audience they have and that's often when we make some of our most um some of our, our best work from like a engaging with audiences and having you know whoever turns up to that show leaving it having enjoyed it is often when we there's that um communication between us and a venue and we know what their audiences are and we can make a show that appeals to them rather than just making the show that we want to make because we're artists and this is what we want to do well that's how you build grassroots isn't it that that is going and i, I say this all the time um it, it takes a little bit of concerted effort and a little bit of consideration and time to build the trust of those audiences. And I think it is helpful sometimes, you know, Delhi, uh, Delhi and all of that managed to do that in London, you know, over 10 years ago now. But I think like you said, it's, I think in other cities, it's maybe building it through those established, not necessarily even theatres, but established cultural institutions that are trusted within those spaces. And I think those kind of collaborations could really establish grassroots audiences and in some ways educate audiences because like you said a lot of people if you'd have called it an art installation they wouldn't have come hell yeah but it's about how you start to build that grassroots it's only in in doing that outside of london that we're going to start to know that that's possible and i just i just don't believe that london can be the only place and and like not only that but i we're so confident at croatia that nottingham can be the place to do that that we are Mm -hmm. we currently run a monthly kind of theatre music jam night at Rough Trade in Nottingham. And we, we it's, it's gig theatre and there's some music acts, but there's also like the last month we had two comedy improv fortune tellers completely independently of each other. Wow. And that's not a particularly common thing that happens in <laughs> Nottingham East Midlands, but they were both, and they were both brilliant and completely separate and different acts. And it was brilliant. And they're, they're, hopefully they're going to come back and do more stuff. We've, um, we're talking to, and this is the thing that's sure enough that I can definitely actually talk about it. Um, we're talking to an escape room, which has uh, this, it has a cave system in its basement and they want to do something in there eventually, but they're not going to do it in the time being. And so we're going to take it over as a venue. Um, awesome. And one of the things you want to do is have immersive work kind of tour there because we have this great venue. It's going to have the bits and bobs that, you might need in order to do it and it's this kind of and when i say cave system i mean like yeah multiple rooms lots of square footage you could do really interesting stuff there or just use a little bit of it but we want to be able to try and open that up and unlock that for people so if you want to do if you're students in nottingham trent and you want to do a fashion show or a film screening here's a massively atmospheric space even if you're just like you have a D group and you've gone into a dungeon then come have your session here for the, mm-hmm. for the evening and be in a dungeon you know like we want to try and make that space open and and as well as doing our own immersive our own playable stuff in there and having it as like somewhere where we can try out ideas and test things out and establish an audience but that's part of our you know our commitment and our idea that it's like yeah Nottingham has all of this it has the audiences and you just have to make stuff you know you, I think we just have to shout loudly enough and get some of the like you said the key cultural institutions the, the main cultural magazine and Nottingham Left Lion all these other things if we can get these places to kind of amplify and talk about it then people will know it's happening and people will want to come along to it um, well I'm excited because Nottingham is sort of like just under an hour on the train from me in Birmingham I think it's it's a yeah. super quick hot quicker than getting into London and then of course when you get into London you still get somewhere else yeah. whereas 
if I get on the train to Nottingham, I'm in Nottingham. <laughs> Which has always been, uh, I, I really love Nottingham. I studied fashion in another life <laughs> very, very early on. And we used to come up to Nottingham for fabric buying yeah. trips. So Nottingham has, has a certain place in my heart for that reason. But it's always felt vibrant. And like you said, it's been a digital hub and a digital space of innovation for 20 20 25 30 years it's easily yeah yeah <laughs> longer it's insane okay so i realize uh, that time is marching on um what is the best way for people to sort of keep up with what you're doing um it's probably social media or checking out the productions on on our website um mm-hmm. you can find us well, I mean, we're Chronic Insanity. On Twitter, we're CI Theatre, and everywhere else, we're Chronic Insanity Theatre. I was going to um, say, I Googled you and you came up straight. Like, was it, was it, I put, well, I put Chronic Insanity Theatre, because otherwise yeah. you get lots of psychology stuff. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, if, if you search Chronic Insanity Theatre, we have the black and white logo that says Chronic Insanity. Find us and follow us. We, we're always, we have a lot on, and there's always stuff happening. Um, even just f- for the rest of the August, like I said, we're taking shows up to Edinburgh, we have a digital art and performance festival we're doing in the summer. We have our, we're doing other bits and bobs for other festivals. If you're in Nottingham, we're doing stuff in person. And if not, we've got loads of, di- we have some digital work that's just online and it's free and it's on demand and you can go and chat with it now or later or whatever. Yeah. Well, that's great. Cause I have a lot of people over half um, the people who listen, who are listening. Hello, lovely people <laughs> are actually uh, across the rest of the globe and not in the UK. So it's great yeah. that they will actually be able to sort of, get in there and access some of some of the work which is wonderful well joe thank you so much for taking the time there's a, there's a gazillion other things i could have asked you i've got like 20 questions down here that we haven't even got to but um i i suspect it will not be our last conversation <laughs> I, i'm very happy to have another yeah yeah and uh, there's lots and lots going on at the moment that um, i think I, i'm going to loop you into and we'll probably talk about afterwards but um Thank you so much for being generous and sharing about your work. And if you're listening, please do go on the website and see what you can hook into, because there's definitely lots of things you can access without needing to be in Nottingham. But also, if you are in the UK and you are in Nottingham or going to Edinburgh, then uh, have a look and I'll get your socials off you so I can post them so people can click through to those as well. So thank you so much, Joe. It's been a real pleasure and we will talk again, hopefully very soon. (laughs) Thank you very much. I really hope you enjoyed that episode. Um, I tried really hard as well because, of course, Joe and myself uh, are both involved in scholarship. So we did try not to sort of get down any any rabbit holes of very sort of dense or conceptual, theoretical, technical things. I think we might have done a little bit of that, but not too much as usual. I love to hear from people who are listening, whether you're listening and think you're somebody I should be talking to, then please do just get in touch. Or whether you uh, listen while you run, while you have a cup of tea, while you crochet, while you're on your way to immersive pieces of theatre. I love to hear from you regardless. So please do reach out and get in touch with me. And um, there's lots of exciting things on the horizon. I've got lots of chats booked in with lots of different uh, creatives. So I'm really excited. I'm quite looking forward um, to the new content that I know is going to be coming to you over the next couple of months. There's also, as I keep saying, some exciting initiatives that I'm working on and projects I'm working on, which I can't share with you just yet. But as soon as I am able to, I promise that I will. I feel like I'm keeping you on kind of tenterhooks now, just kind of going along and along and along for like months and months. So I do apologise, but very soon there will be some cool announcements and it's one of the reasons that I have been so busy but anyway like I said loads of really cool and exciting chats lined up that I am really really looking forward to getting out to you so if you don't want to miss those make sure that you're subscribed so you don't miss any episodes as usual I'm never entirely sure when they're going to drop because um, sometimes we have to shuffle around each other's calendars to get those episodes in but it will be something in may so please listen out for that and as ever get in touch if you're someone that you think i should be talking to take care until next time bye bye